Sefer Shoftim is the second of the books in the Vayim Rishonim. The Gemara Bava Basra, identifies the author of Sefer Shoftim as Shmuel Hanavi, who is also identified as the author of Sefer Shmuel and Sefer Rus. The name of the book obviously derives from the primary contents, the middle chapters of the book, which deal with the various judges who judged the Jewish people in Eretz Canaan uh, from the death of Yoshua until the rise of Shmuel Hanafi. Perhaps the earliest reference to the period as the period of the Shoftim in that sense is the book of Sefer Rus, which begins, Vayihi Bimei Shefot HaShofetim, which in a sense identifies it as a particular era. The period of Shoftim represents a time in which there was very little unity amongst the tribes of the Jewish people. From the perspective of geography, Eretz Kena'an can be divided into three portions, a division which is reflected in the various battles throughout the book of Shoftim, and even later in the period of the Mishnah. The three areas, to use the Mishnah's terminology, are Eretz Yehuda, Judea, the Galil, the Galilee, and Ever Hayardain, the Transjordan, the area where the two and a half tribes, Reuven, God, and half of the tribe of Manasseh had taken up residence. The last large concentration of Canaanites who were left in Eretz Canaan after the earlier conquests were in the valley of Yisrael. The Jews, at least for a time, had difficulty driving them out because the king Yavin Melech Kenan had many chariots, and those chariots could not function in the mountainous areas, but they could function in the flat areas of Amek Yisrael. And the, the major final battle there was that of Devorah and Barak. The story of Gidon as well seems to center around Amek Yisrael, and in both of these stories, the tribes that were involved in the fighting were those, naturally, that were situated in the mountains around both sides of Amek Yisrael, to the south, Ephraim and Menasheh and Binyamin, uh, and to the north, Zvulun, uh, Naphtali, and Yisachar. The only battle that takes place in Ever Hayardain is that of Yiftach HaGiladi, and he is fighting against Bnei Amon. And they are fighting over land that is in Transjordan that Bnei Amon claimed the Jews had taken from them and they wished to get the land back in return and then they would go away peacefully. The story of Shimshon takes place in Eretz Yehuda because Eretz Yehuda was next to the land of Plishtim. The Plishtim lived along the coast of the Mediterranean towards the south. And one of the characteristics of most of the stories, and Dvorah criticizes certain of the tribes in her Shira for not aiding their brothers in battle, is that each tribe would be only interested in its own problems or in its local problems, and hence one finds that the only people involved in dealing with the Plishtim are really 
Shimshon, and to a lesser extent, although they wished to avoid the battle, B'nai Yehuda, and the primary people involved in fighting B'nai Ammon in the time of Yiftach were B'nai Menashe. B'nai Ephraim were upset that they weren't called to help, but obviously they weren't running in the first place to help. And in the battle against Yavin Melech Canaan, against Sisra, we find that Devorah criticizes the tribes that were in Aver Hayardin for not coming to help, um, and any of those tribes that didn't participate, and in some ways they didn't participate because they weren't local. With respect to chronology, the three parts of the book are not in order. When I say the three parts of the book, I refer to Perak Aleph, Pasuk Aleph, through Perak Bey's Pasuk Hay, which gives an overview of the period of how they did or didn't drive out the Canaanites. From Perak Bey's Pasuk Vav till the end of Perak Tezayin is a description of the individual Shoftim and their military campaigns, and those are probably in chronological order. It certainly would appear so. And then the last five chapters of the book, which encompass the story of Pesel Micha and Pilegesh Begiva, are also not connected chronologically to the rest of the book. The majority of commentators assume that the last five chapters may actually take place way back at the beginning of the period of the Shoftim, and for whatever reason, they're placed at the end of the book. But each of these three divisions has to be read almost, in effect, as being simultaneous narration, but obviously, due to the limitations of the written word, one has to be written before the other. The remainder of this shear will consist of an overview and summary of the major events and parts of Sefer Shoftim. Before beginning that, I wish to conclude the opening with a fascinating comment that the Gemara records in Maseches Nedarim Dachaf Beis Amid Beis. The Gemara says, Amar Rav Ada Berabi Chanina, Il Mole Chatu Yisrael, Lonita Nohem Elachamisha Chum Shetora, Vesefer Yeshua Bilvad, Sheerka Shel Eretz Yisrael Hu. If the Jewish people had never sinned, they would only have been given the Torah, the five books of the Torah, and the book of Yoshua, which speaks to the value and worth of Eretz Yisrael. My taima, why is this so? The Gemara concludes, Kibiro Chachma Rav Ka'as. The more one knows, the more angst one has. In a sense, on a literal level, the Gemara is suggesting that the punishment for sinning was that we received more Torah. I think that the pshat of Rav Adab Rabbi Hanina's statement, though, should not be overlooked. Sefer Yehoshua is a story primarily of conquest and victory and of obeying God's word. And if everything had continued after the time of Yehoshua, as it had been done in the time of Yehoshua, there would have been little more to say. With the exception of Sefer Yehoshua, Nevi'im Rishonim and Sefer Shoftim in particular are really about Chet Va'onesh sin and punishment. Sefer Shoftim particularly stands out in this regard because almost every chapter or story, certainly of the main part of the Sefer from Perak Beis through Perak Tezayin, describes sin, describes the Jews' 
crying out to God, describes the process of tshuva, and describes the salvation of God, the repeated cycle. Sefer Yoshua itself contains very little of this, other than perhaps the sin of Achan. But Sefer Yoshua fundamentally is one of military victory and fulfilling God's word. But the rest of Nevi'im Rishonim comes to teach us the history of Chet Onesh. And hence, had the Jewish people never sinned, they would have received nothing but Chamisha Chumshei Torah and Sefer Yehoshua. Sefer Shoftim consists of three parts. The first part, which is, in a sense, a conclusion to the book of Yehoshua, is a description of the conclusion of the conquest of Eretz Kena'an. As one can see from Sefer Shoftim, and this is already mentioned in Sefer Yehoshua, Yehoshua himself did not complete the conquest of all of Eretz Kena'an, and even in the period of the Shoftim, the conquest was never completed totally. One finds in the first chapter a description of the various military campaigns that took place after the death of Yehoshua. Some of the tribes, particularly Yehudan Shimon, were described as having done a more complete job of fulfilling the obligation of wiping out the seven nations. Most of the other Shvatim are described as not having completed it, but rather of having at some point conquered the other nations, but not always driven them out or killed them, but instead have left them uh, left them to exist, having to pay a tax, to pay a mass. And as a result of this, one finds, at the beginning of the second chapter, that a messenger of God uh, comes to them and admonishes them for not having completed the, the job. And that ends the first section of the book. And it is important to keep in mind that in some sense, chronologically speaking, what one finds in the first chapter, or first chapter plus, does not necessarily come before what is described in later parts of the book, meaning that there is a degree of simultaneity here, and that, in effect, the first chapter plus represents a summary of what happens throughout the period of the Shoftim. The second and largest portion of the Sefer, beginning in Perak Beis with Pasuk Vav, going until the end of Perak Tezayin, is a description of the individual shoftim, the individual leaders, uh, and their various military campaigns. And it begins with a broad overview or a pattern, a descriptive pattern of the period in which the Jews abandon God, worship of Odazara, and God punishes them by causing them to be dominated by some other nation, be it Ammon or Moab or the Shiva Amamim. And then... They would cry out to God, and God would listen to their pleas, and he would send a show faith in order to restore their power and to remove them from underneath the yoke of the oppressing nations. And the Navi describes that this pattern would repeat itself over and over again. Moving on through the book, so after this description, in Perak Gimel, one finds a description of two of the Shoftim. One is very brief, and that is the reign of Asniel ben Kenaz, and he is described as having saved the Jews from the yoke of Kushan Rish Asayim. A longer description is provided of the story of Ehud ben Geiraf of Shevet ben Yamin uh, and his exploits against the king of Moab Eglon 
and how he assassinated them and eventually pushed out the Moabites. Perak, Dalit, and Hay deal with the war of Devorah and Barak against the Canaanim, and here it's worth noting the geography that the one of the areas in which the Canaanites were still concentrated and still had a foothold in Eretz Canaan was in the Valley of Israel, Amek Israel. And Amek Israel, in a sense, is flanked to the south by Ephraim and a portion of Menashe, and to the north by the tribes of Asher, Zevulun, and Naphtali. And one will see in the story of Dvorah that these are the tribes that were prime, the primary tribes who were engaged in fighting against the Canaanites. Uh, the story, in effect, is told twice. In Paragdalid, it is told in the classic mold of historical narrative, as we find throughout most of the Nevi'im Rishonim. And then in Perikhei, one finds the Shira, the song of the Vora upon the victory, and this itself contains a fair amount of historical telling of the story. And many details that are omitted in Perak Dalit are actually filled in in Perak Hay. Moving on, the next three chapters, Perak Vav, Zayin, and Ches, deal with the exploits of Gidom. Now, Gidom challenges God for having abandoned the Jewish people, and Chazal see in this his greatness and why God then provides him with the mantle of leadership. He begins first by challenging the religious backsliding of his contemporaries, of his local townsfolk, by destroying the Mizbeach of the Baal and by slaughtering its cows. And he moves from there uh, to the military battle against the tribes that were oppressing the Jews. Now, in this case, the tribes that were attacking the Jews were Midian, and they were joined by Amalek and Vnei Kedem. These seem to be all, in effect, desert dwellers, who were attempting, perhaps, to do the same thing that Klal Yisrael had done earlier, which was conquering Eretz Yisrael after entering from the desert. Perak Zion begins with the description of Gidon gathering the troops together and God deciding that there were too many troops, for whatever the reason, and he instructs Gidon to call the troops. Uh, it is followed by a description of God providing Gidon with a sign that his victory his, that his military exploits would be victorious. When he descends into the enemy camp at night and hears one man telling another about his dream and the other man interprets it as a sign of victory for Gidon. He then engages in battle with his 300 men and conquers or drives out the, uh, the invading uh, tribes. And in the process, uh, we are told that B'nai Ephraim uh, conquer uh, two major figures, Orev and Ze'ev, but they are angry at Gidon, and this big, leads us into the, the Tuperiches, about the fact that they were not called to the initial battle. And here, uh, as distinct from a, a later incident with Yiftach, Gidon deals with them in an appropriate fashion. He attempts to appease them, uh, and uh, civil strife is avoided amongst Gidon and the other tribes. He continues on a campaign to conquer the two kings of Midian, Zavach and Salmunah. He meets resistance or reluctance of certain towns and cities to assist him in his campaign. He threatens to punish them once he conquers Zavach and Salmunah. He subsequently does conquer Zavach and Salmunah, the kings of Midian, and on his way back he punishes the people who had refused to help him.
He brings the king back. Ultimately, he kills them. The description of Gidon's life concludes with the request from the Jewish people for him to be a king, for him and his children and his grandchildren to rule over them. And Gidon says to them that he will have no such thing, that God will rule over them as a king, not anybody else. And that ends the story of Gidon. Perictes provides us with a very interesting sidebar to the series of Shoftim that we find. Here we find the one king during the period of Shoftim, and that is Avimelech, Gidon's son, although he was Gidon's son uh, from his Pilegesh who lived in Shrem, he was not his son from one of, the, uh, regu- one of his regular wives. The story of Avimelech is that he hires 70 people and kills his 70 brothers, and he becomes king. The Navi describes him as having ruled over the Jews for three years. As punishment for his murder of his brothers, God introduces dissent between Avimelech and the people of Shechem, and the Perak describes the battles that took place between them, with ultimately Avimelech conquering the city of Shechem, destroying it, plowing it up and planting it or seeding it with salt, and conquering the rest of his enemies. He meets ultimately his end at the hands of a woman when he approaches a tower that the people were, his enemies were hiding in. He approaches the tower to set fire to it, and a woman drops a millstone on his head and kills him. And that is the end of the story of Avimelech. After this, we are told of a two very brief reigns of Shoftim, brief in the sense of little description is provided. In one case, it was a reign of 23 years by Tola, Ben Pua, Ben Dodo, of the tribe of Issachar, and then the reign of Yair HaGiladi. Uh, both of them reigned in excess, slightly in excess of 20 years. And after that, we are provided again with a long narrative of the next two chapters or so, Perak Yud Aleph and Perak Yud Beis, with the description of the exploits of Yiftach HaGiladi. Yiftach from Shevet Menashe was, like Avimelech, the son of a concubine. He was not the son of one of the regular wives. He had been driven out by his family. However, he was a mighty warrior, and when his fellow tribesmen were being oppressed by Bnei Amon, they turned to him for assistance. Yiftach, after some dialogue with his tribesmen, agrees to accept the responsibility, and he sends messengers to the king of Ammon, asking him why is he oppressing the Jewish people, and if there had been any claims that should have been pressed as to the land that the Jews were living in, they should have been pressed 300 years ago when the Jews conquered the land from Sichon and Og. Needless to say, the king of Ammon did not heed Yiftach's warning, Yiftach goes out to battle with him. In the course of going out to battle, he utters a very famous vow about anything that will come out of his house first, he will, set, he will bring it to God as an Olah. Yiftach is successful in conquering Bnei Ammon. But of course, tragically speaking, the first thing to exit the door of his house was, was, was his daughter. And here we are provided with a very enigmatic passage as to what exactly he did to her. She requested a short period of time before he would fulfill his vow. And we are simply told by the Navi that she knew no man after that. Uh, There is 
a great degree of ambiguity, deliberate here, whether or not he actually sacrificed her. But that ends the story in chapter 11. In the next parak, we find, once again, as we saw earlier with Gidon, the Bnei Ephraim were somehow insulted that they hadn't been properly included in the battle plans. But as opposed to Gidon, who responded gently and appeased them, Yiftach would hear of no such thing, and he eventually goes to war with them, and this provides us with a very famous incident in which they conquered the crossing points of the river, and when the Bnei Ephraim attempted to cross back to escape, they would ask him for the password, and apparently they were unable to pronounce the Shin uh, in Shiboleth. Instead, they would say Siboleth, and hence the English word Shibboleth. And as a result, many thousands of Bnei Ephraim uh, were slaughtered at the hands of their brothers. After the death of Yiftach, the Navi describes for us very briefly the reign of three Shoftim. The first of them is Ivtan of Beis Lechem, presumably from Shevet Yehuda. Chazal identify him as being Boaz. The second one is from the tribe of Zvulun. His name was Elon. And finally, the last one was a Shofet who was named Avdon ben Hillel, presumably of Pirason. The description is Hapirasoni. After these three, three brief reigns, we begin Perak Yud Gimel. And the next four chapters deal with one of the more enigmatic and tragic figures in the period of the Shoftim, a fascinating figure, and that is Shimshon. The first chapter in the narrative of Shimshon describes how a Malach appeared to the wife of Manoach and informed her that she would be giving birth to a son and that he would be a Nazir and that as a result she was to abstain from wine and from anything that came out of the Geffen and she was to refrain from eating anything impure. The story continues that she calls her husband who requests a revisit of the Malach, which occurs, and uh, eventually uh, their son Shimshon is born, uh, and God blesses him and begins to uh, visit Shimshon or cause his spirit to dwell upon him uh, between in Machanaydan, Bein Sarah, Uvein Eshtaol. The story continues in Perak Yudalin with Shimshon seeking a wife among the daughters of Plishtim, much to the consternation of his parents. Uh, but he insists upon it. He goes and he uh, picks out a wife, and his father goes along with him. Along the way, a, a famous side incident is described in which Shimshon encounters a pride of lions, and he tears them apart with his bare hands. They eventually arrive in the Philistine town, uh, and uh, they agree to marry. He agrees to marry a certain woman, uh, and then we have the famous story of the riddle that Shimshon offers them after after they find 30 uh, groomsmen for him, and he offers them the riddle, and they are unable to solve it until they extort or threaten Shimshon's wife. And uh, as a result, they win the prize from Shimshon. As a result of that, as payback, he goes and he kills 30 Philistines in order to provide uh, the clothing that had been promised. 
he is angry at his uh, wife and her family for having revealed his secret, and he leaves at the moment. In the next chapter in Perak Tesvav, Shimshon decides to patch things up. He comes back to his former or almost father-in-law, and it turns out his first wife had been given to someone else, which angers Shimshon greatly, and he decides to punish the Plishtim for this, and he destroys a great deal of their property. He then returns to somewhere in the area of Shevet Yehuda, and the Plishtim come after him. Uh, B'nai Yehuda, who want no trouble from the Plishtim, ask Shimshon why he's creating problems for them. Shimshon simply asks them to hand him over without harming him themselves, and they do that. And in the process, Shimshon, of course, is tied up. When the Plishtim approach him, he tears apart his ropes, and he and he just kills many of the Plishtim in one of his more heroic feats. The last chapter, in the great tragedy in the story of Shimshon, Perek Tazayin, uh, begins with Shimshon falling for Delila. This is obviously the famous comment of Chazal in the Mishnah in Sota, Shimshon halach achar enav, lefichach nikru plishtim es enav. Shimshon went astray after his eyes, and as his punishment, the Philistines put out his eyes. He sees this woman, and in Nachal Sorek, he loves her. The Plishtim decide, here is their opportunity. They come and they bribe her with a sum of 1,100 kesef to discover Shimshon's secret, the secret of his strength. And she uses her powers of persuasion after several failed attempts to convince Shimshon to tell her the truth. He does. They shave off his head in the middle of the night. She shaves off his head. And at that point, God abandons Shimshon and the Plishtim imprison him. And this leads to the final heroic feat of Shimshon, characterized by his famous line, Tamos Nafshi in Plishtim, where Shimshon is brought out when the Plishtim are celebrating for their gods, their victory over him. They bring him out so that he should literally play in front of them, and he pulls the pillars of the house down upon the party. The Navi says that he killed more people in that one incident than he did in his entire life. And that is the end of Shimshon. The last two chapters of the book relate two of the more sordid incidents in the period of the Shoftim. One of them relates primarily to a violation between Adam Lamakum between man and God, an act of Avodizara, and the second relates to one of the more horrific incidents in Tanakh Bain Adam Lachavero between man and fellow man. The first two of the last five chapters Perak Yudzayin and Perak Yudches deal with the story of Pesel Micha. The story, briefly, is that Micha stole some money from his mother. She cursed whoever stole the money. He comes to her to do tshuva, and she tells him that she has dedicated the money to God, so basically out of that he makes a Pesel. And then the story continues in Perak Yudches, how there was an itinerant levy. As it turns out, at the end of the story, at the end of Perak Ches, it appears to be the grandson of Moshe Rabbeinu. And 
this itinerant Levi becomes Micha's priest for his idol. And according to the Navi, this idol was to remain there at Yom Galos Haaretz until the day of the exile of the land. What exactly that refers to is not clear. In the process of the story of Pesel Micha, we are told of the migration of Shevet Don. Shevet Don initially had a portion of land near the Philistine coast, near Shevet Yehuda, but the land wasn't enough, and they sought out new land, and ultimately they would conquer land in the north of Eretz Israel. And we are told of this process in the story of Pesel Micha, as it stands the spies for Sheva Dun, who were seeking out new land, encounter the Levi, who was Micha's priest. On their way, he gives them counsel. He asks God about their trip. They discover a very appealing land. And on the way back, after discovering this appealing land, they return home and tell their fellow tribesmen of Dun how appealing it is that they should go quickly. There's no reason to wait. And on their way to go conquer the, their land, they steal Pesel Micha, they take the Levi with them, and there's little that Micha can do. The second story is the story of Pilegesh Begiva. The story of Pilegesh Begiva is that a man had a Pilegesh. There was some marital discord. She ran back to her father's home. Eventually, he follows her to retrieve her, and on his way home, they are forced to stay overnight in another town. They, they are not able to make it home. They end up staying in Giva, which was in Nachalas ben Yamin. Echoing the story of Sodom, nobody wishes to take the man or his Pilegesh or his Nar in for the night, except for one old Zakain who invites them in. In the middle of the night, the house is surrounded by the townspeople who uh, who wish to get to know the man, very much in the way that the people of Sodom wish to get to know Lot's, mess, Lot's guests. Instead of the man uh, going outside, he takes his Pilegesh and he throws her out to the townspeople. They molest her and abuse her all night, leave her, leaving her for dead in the morning on the uh, threshold of the house. The man, discovering his dead Pilegesh, takes her, cuts her body up into pieces, sends it throughout the tribes to alert them to the horrible deeds that have taken place. The tribes all gather together to Mitzpah, and they decide what to do. They offer an ultimatum to Shevet Binyamin to hand over the perpetrators, Shevet Binyamin refuses to hand them over, and the rest of Perechaf describes the three battles which take place between the Shevet of Binyamin and the rest of the Shvatim. Ultimately, the Shvatim wipe out virtually the entire tribe of Binyamin with only a few men left. Perechaf Aleph concludes with more bloodshed. After having wiped out almost the entire tribe of Binyamin, the Shvatim have a degree of remorse, but they have a problem because they have taken vows not to give their daughters over to the people of Binyamin to marry, and there are 600 men of Binyamin who have no one to marry right now. They had killed all the women and children in the course of their military campaign. The solution to this problem is more killing. They discover that there was one tribe who had not joined in the battle against Binyamin, 
and that was the people of Yavesh Gilad, not an entire tribe. And as punishment for that, they go and they wipe out Yavesh Gilad, but they do not kill the women uh, who would potentially be spouses for B'nai Binyamin, and there are 400 women. There's still 200 women short to provide wives, and for that they suggest that B'nai Binyamin wait until the uh, the young women go out to dance in the vineyards, uh, and uh, at that time they should simply seize wives, and this way uh, the fathers of these girls would not be responsible for giving over their daughters in marriage, uh, and would not have violated their oath. And the Navi concludes the Sefer with the refrain that is found something like four times in the last uh, last five chapters of the book, that at the, that time there was no king among the Jewish people, and ish hayashar ve'enav ya'aseh, as a result, each man would do whatever he saw fit.